Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Dumbrill Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Dumbrill, and today I'll be talking to you about the idea of calling COVID-19 the Chinese virus and addressing the increase in xenophobic attacks towards the Asian populations in many Western nations. All right, so this is a topic I've been thinking about for a while, particularly because I've had an increasingly growing number of people reaching out to me about being afraid or even giving up hope in regards to feeling like a target because of their appearance. I've done my best to respond to everyone who reached out to me, but considering how quickly the number of people contacting me is growing, I wanted to put something specific together to point those people to, particularly before it gets a bit too overwhelming to respond to everyone. So the way I'm going to set this up here is to first talk about the concept of calling COVID-19 the Chinese virus, what's actually going on here, why people are doing it, and what it says about the people who are doing it. I'll speak about some of the other interesting side notes and stories that are related to this phenomena. Then I'll finish off with some advice and words of encouragement for those of you who are experiencing a tough time with this. So first and foremost, let's talk about the idea of calling COVID-19 the Chinese virus. And why exactly is it that the World Health Organization doesn't want you to name viruses after places? At the end of the day, we have Ebola virus, the West Nile virus, the Zika virus, and the Spanish flu, as you'll often hear from people who are so desperate to call this virus the Chinese virus. Well, let's first start off by making it clear Ebola is a river. There is no Ebolanese people to discriminate against. There are no West Nilese people for the same reason. Zika is a forest. There are no Zikanese people. And well, the Spanish flu was a long time ago. And I think we can all agree we've grown as a people since then. And don't say a lot of things we even said 20 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. There are, however, Chinese people and there are Wuhanese people or Wuhan people or Wuhan Ren, as you would say in Chinese. And as a matter of fact, those Wuhan people were even discriminated against in China. This isn't exclusively an outside of China problem, of course. And even if someone wanted to make the argument that those other names are still somewhat regional, they're a little bit less connected to nationality or race specifically. And the new naming guidelines were actually put in place by the World Health Organization in 2015. This wasn't something that magically appeared just in time for this virus. You will notice there are some other viruses named after countries like Japanese encephalitis, but you'll also find that the last reference to it by this name on the World Health Organization website is in 2014. And when the spreading of Japanese encephalitis is linked to an increase in attacks on Asian populations, it should really be just as much of a cause for concern. But let's talk about where this new naming guideline came from. Back during the early stages of H1N1, it was popularly referred to as the swine flu. Panicking countries banned the sale of pork, and Egypt went as far as slaughtering all 300,000 pigs in the country. The problem with this is that while H1N1 likely originated in pigs, the 2009 H1N1 outbreak was almost exclusively a human-to-human -human transmission crisis. When you realize that even at a state level, you have entire nations making poor choices based on naming alone, you can begin to appreciate what the street-level implications are for naming a virus after a group of people. The scope and impact will be worse by many measures, considering how the human victims of a poorly named virus are subjected to the ignorance not of the state, but now the masses, which can oftentimes be far worse. 
not only because you're dealing with the ignorance of the uneducated, making um, an assumption here that government officials are in contrast educated, and as a result, you're more likely to encounter uneducated or uncultured individuals in the general population. I know this is somewhat of a flawed idea, especially these days. But regardless, aside from this potential, aside from this example, the masses are, generally speaking, exposed to groups of people more than they are to passels of hogs. So the day-to-day -day implications are far more widespread. There are, of course, exceptions when a more widespread state-sponsored impact is felt by a group of people. Take, for example, in 1899 when the Honolulu government quarantined and burned the city's Chinatown after bubonic plague concerns were overly racialized. But we've learned so much about what's right and wrong since then. So getting back to the swine flu example, let's ignore for a moment that now today with COVID-19, we're talking about humans instead of pigs who are affected by its naming. It might, however, still be worth mentioning that if you were to explain to the average person the illogical consequences for innocent pigs around the world to suffer, they'd probably say, well, I guess that makes sense. We should stop calling it swine flu. But for many of those same people, they don't seem too phased about the risk of Asian people being assaulted when calling COVID-19 the Chinese virus. And that really begs an important question. We have a name for this virus. Why is it some people are so desperate to call this the Chinese virus? Well, my take is that there are really one of two possibilities here. Keeping in mind, it is them who are making an active effort to reject the official naming which is already pretty indicative of them having an agenda. That agenda could either be simply because this is the perfect excuse to air out their underlying pre-existing racist tendencies that have been waiting so long for an outlet. I mean, if you think about it in terms of people who go as far as physically attacking Asians, it doesn't make sense that it's born from a true concern that these people are carriers of the virus. Otherwise, why would they be making physical contact with them? The second possibility is that their need to make a point about this virus's origin, or their need to villainize China, quite simply outweighs their concerns for ordinary innocent civilians. We have enough data, and we have enough history to tell us that Asians will suffer from such rhetoric, but they make an active choice. They make a conscious conclusion that their need to make a point outweighs the safety of these innocent people. Now, this is where I'm going to divert a little bit off topic for a bit here. Somewhat. It's still loosely related. But it's in regards to the fact that Donald Trump has decided it is more important to make a specific superficial point than it is to be concerned about the safety of his Asian American citizens. So the point when Donald Trump really started to up his game was after Zhao Lijian, a Chinese politician, started tweeting conspiracy theories about COVID-19 originating in the US. While there are a lot of shocking details worth exploring, I thought it was a little premature to go so aggressive with these claims. But this is Zhao Lijian. We actually follow each other on Twitter, and he's no stranger to Twitter outbursts long before this COVID-19 situation. Personally, I'll be honest, I found it a bit distasteful, but this was his own personal opinion. This is the thing that's interesting. People are so used to, or at least expectant, of a unified message for anyone who works for the Chinese Communist Party that even an individual expressing themselves becomes representative of the party. It was Zhao Lijian's tweet that really pushed Trump to up his blame game and Chinese virus naming choice. And this is ironic for so many reasons. It is the people of the world that continually judge the level of free speech that China has or lacks, oftentimes with superficial metrics, which I won't get into with too much detail here. But when someone finally steps out of line with what usually seems to be like a carefully manicured and unified message from the CCP, 
oftentimes a message that doesn't bite back at this kind of stuff, critics have exposed that they didn't really ever want these people to have individual thought. Chinese people are actually even continually reminded of this when they try to explain to outsiders what they love about their country or government. They're disregarded as brainwashed, even the ones who are educated overseas, if they don't strictly agree with the West's criticisms of China. There are even a few people in Washington, D.C. who specifically said that Zhao Lijian should be banned from Twitter because of how responsible he now is for the degradation of Chinese-U.S. relations. But these same people never called to ban Donald Trump for his responsibility in the degradation of the safety of Asian Americans. Trump wants to send a message to Zhao Lijian. His need to make this message clear outweighs his concerns that he should have for the safety of many of his own citizens. If every other country in the world suddenly decided how their relationship with America works should be based on the worst loose canon of an American politician, America wouldn't have any friends left and they'd fare far worse than China has in this little fight. At the end of the day, whether I agree with Zhao Lijian's strategy or not, he's only doing a fraction of what the US usually says and does to China, whether it be through general fear-mongering on a regular basis or active sponsored disinformation campaigns through the NED or Radio Asia. For that rabbit hole, I recommend you look at Max Blumenthal's short documentary on the NED, which is available on YouTube. What the US is doing now is penalizing China for having a politician that stood out with independent thought, who stepped out of line, who finally bit back, and who once again only did a fraction of what the US usually does. It's not only China that's paying for this, as I mentioned, it's also Asian Americans. Now, I will say the increased noise around a possible foreign origin for this virus, combined with the fact that most new cases in China are now imported, has created a bit of an uncomfortable environment for foreigners in China who are being treated suspiciously by some citizens. China recognized this shift very early on and almost immediately started releasing anti-discrimination guides, posts, and even videos that they air in all of the subway stations. I have heard of stories where foreigners were treated suspiciously. I haven't personally experienced this as of yet, but it goes nowhere near as close as what Asians are experiencing overseas. Perhaps more importantly is that in China here, we feel like we are being recognized by the institutions here and they care about us. They recognize that this is a problem and they're doing what they can to fix it. Whereas in America, you have your highest power in the country, the leader of your country, throwing its own people under the bus in order to make a point in a personal fight. And this brings me to my final part. How can those affected by this pull through this tough situation? Well, first I'll tell you that with white folks in China being treated suspiciously, particularly after enjoying a level of hospitality and welcomeness in China, difficult to find anywhere else in the world for someone of any other ethnicity, for the first time in their life, they felt a small portion of what it's like to be discriminated against. And as one of my Kiwi friends put it, it made him so much more empathetic towards the people who experience this on a more regular basis. Now, you as Asian Americans or elsewhere, wherever you're experiencing COVID-19 related discrimination, you probably didn't need this lesson. I'm sure under normal circumstances, you've already had the opportunity to experience discrimination once or twice, but probably nothing quite like what you're going through now, at least judging by the numbers and types of messages I've been receiving lately. In that regard, this is so much more of a learning opportunity for you than what you've normally been exposed to. Granted, it's a learning opportunity you didn't ask for. It's a learning opportunity you perhaps would rather do without. But it's here. Let's make the most of it. I'll start off by saying this will pass. It always does. So hang in there. 
After 9-11, it was anyone with brown skin who felt targeted. Muslims were the primary target, with mosques being burned down and, and other Muslims in the streets being targeted. But there was also collateral damage, even in the form of an actual death when a Sikh man with a turban was killed because his attacker thought he was a Muslim. It of course wouldn't matter even if he actually was a Muslim. This is a despicable crime regardless. But perhaps an important point for those of you who are not Chinese and being targeted simply for being Asian or Asian looking. If you're in a situation where you feel the best way for you to protect yourself is to try and convince your attacker that you're not Chinese, I'm not going to judge you. But if you're using this strategy not out of necessity, but because you yourself discriminate against the Chinese and are more offended at being mistaken as a Chinese than you are at the actual discrimination that was meant for the Chinese, then shame on you. The reason I think about this and the reason I'm mentioning this is because I saw a tweet from a Canadian Hong Konger in Vancouver. He goes by the anonymous name of WAPA, who was cheering on Donald Trump for calling this virus Chinese virus. WAPA is an individual who has long dedicated a significant amount of time to publish misleading or fabricated content with a goal of dehumanizing or discriminating against mainland Chinese, trying to paint them as uncivilized or inferior to Hong Kongers. He actually went as far as replying to one of his followers who reminded him that even Hong Kongers were being attacked because of the branding surrounding this virus as a Chinese virus. He went as far as responding to one of his followers who reminded him that even Hong Kongers were being attacked because of the branding of this virus as the Chinese virus by replying and saying he finds it hard to believe that they weren't speaking Mandarin Chinese. Let's just ignore for a moment how okay it seems like he would have been if this story was about a mainlander speaking Mandarin being beat up something he's previously promoted to happen in Saskatchewan. I'll first start off by explaining that in Hong Kong they speak Cantonese, and WAPA is so detached from reality and has such an immense superiority complex that he has honestly convinced himself that the average racist guy attacking someone who they think is Chinese, who's usually not even able to distinguish Japanese or Koreans, would have the ability to distinguish Cantonese from Mandarin. I'm not going to lie here. I really am disgusted by this guy, and I just wanted to find an opportunity to get this story off my chest. But let's continue on to something more constructive. What's happening here is you're becoming hyper-aware of what it's like to be even more of a target than you usually are. Your ability to empathize with whoever the target is next time should be heightened. Your likelihood of standing up against these injustices, against whoever the next group is, is greater. Your ability to speak about your experiences with mindless discrimination increases. You may not be able to convince the incredibly ignorant to change their ways, but you may be able to speak in a personal enough way to those who are not yet too far gone so that they follow a better path without bigotry and hatred. Your ability to convince the youngsters of today to become more enlightened individuals of tomorrow becomes far more likely as well. When you speak up for a target group which you do not belong to, it's far more powerful than when you ask for discrimination to stop only when you're the target. That's kind of what I'm doing now. I'm brown, and I didn't speak up when I felt the awkwardness in the air after 9-11 or when I suddenly became screened more often at airport security. I took it on the chin. But it's those kinds of experiences that has me speaking out for you now. And don't forget to do the same for whoever else is next. But don't overdo it. While my experience as a brown person in North America after 9-11 shaped my philosophies of today, what I'm doing right now also comes with a whole new set of epiphanies. I would actually always be quite perplexed when I saw white people who would get more offended than me when it came to ignorance-based racism. If you look at the Justin Trudeau blackface incident, you can see what I mean with a really great recent example. 
when the CBC News in Canada went out and interviewed people on the streets about how offensive they found the Justin Trudeau blackface incident, it was almost exclusively white people who were offended by it the most. Ethnic minorities kind of laughed it off and they said they don't see what the big deal was, or at most they thought it was just a really stupid thing to do. There were some people who picked up on the irony of Justin Trudeau being such a socially woke virtue signaler being caught up in something like this, but it was really white people who found it the most racist and the most offensive. I gotta be honest with you, I kind of made fun of people like that, and I even thought they can sometimes push it so far that they actually create a kind of inequality in the opposite direction where people suddenly need to walk on eggshells around people like me. But in some ways, after this Chinese virus naming issue, I kind of empathize with them a bit more. Their intentions are coming from a good place. It still can be overdone, which needs to be kept in mind. But after hearing from people who are affected a lot more by what's going on now than how I was affected as a brown person after 9-11, I've recognized that some people really do need this support that we provide when they're becoming outraged on behalf of others. It keeps people accountable, and once again, it's more credible when someone is doing it with the intention of helping someone else rather than themselves. You may not come to the same conclusions and methodologies that I have here, but at bare minimum, this is life throwing you an experience that you can contemplate, that you can ask questions about, that you can grow from, you can learn from, and you can become a better person from. Even if your eventual advice looks different from mine, one day tomorrow, someone else is going to require the valuable experience that you've gained from being a target today. Stay positive, guys. Always look for the silver lining. I'm there for you. There are many other people there for you also. And eventually, you'll be that same kind of person for someone else. I'll see you in the next episode.